Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare that seeks to get to the heart of the issue facing the health and social care sector by speaking to experts about how we can truly enable the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahel Mirza. Health and social care has really been more prominent in the news. People are talking of crises and a context of a tight labour market, inflation and cost of living crises. There's also a new landscape across the NHS and healthcare with the introduction of ICSs on a statutory basis. It's therefore vital to hear from leaders who are truly expert in this field. And I can think of hardly anyone who is more qualified to help us navigate this landscape than my guest today, Ian Smith, the chair of NHS Surrey Heartlands Integrated Care Board. Ian, thank you very much for giving your time and welcome. Good to be here. I want to tackle um, the issue of the shortages head on. I want to start with a quote uh, which stated that uh, the situation is extremely serious and it's likely to become critical. Uh, This was talking about the nursing workforce and it's uh, from uh, Aniran Bevan in 1945. If we fast forward nearly 80 years, Richard Murray at the King's Fund is talking about the inability of the healthcare sector to recruit as being a crisis. It's not so much a perennial issue, it seems to be a permanent issue across the NHS and social care. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's a bigger problem in social care, which I'll come back to. I think, uh, and it depends where you are in the country in the NHS. I'm chair of the Surrey Heartlands uh, Integrated Care Board. Uh, and so in terms of recruitment in the NHS, it's less of a problem um, for us. The problem we've got in the NHS workforce is the cost of living crisis uh, that you mentioned. Um, So we've got rapid turnover rates, especially when we recruit from out of the country. Um, So they'll come to Surrey and and pretty quickly figure out the cost of living in the south of England is, uh, is, uh, you know, is untenable. And so they go off to the Midlands or the north. So we've got much higher rates of turnover in the NHS workforce than uh, normally, and our sickness rates are two or three percentage points higher than uh, normal, partly COVID. I think stress is a big problem. I think the uh, the workforce has been under huge pressure, especially the last two years. It doesn't help when the newspapers and, and some politicians, you know, take chunks out of them. You know, these people are working very, very hard, have done for two years, are very selfless, and they need our support, not, you know, why aren't, you know, why can't you see your GP or why can't you get your waiting Uh, list down. Um, So I think the problem in the NHS is less recruitment, it's more turnover, uh, cost of living, and uh, stress. Social care is absolutely in crisis, but that has been in crisis for a number of years now. You know, the headline figures are probably 100,000 short out of a a workforce of uh, 1.2 million or so. And their turnover rates are, or the rates of turnover in social care are higher. And we're just paying those people too little. I mean, uh, we're paying them 12, 13 pounds uh, an hour, often on zero contract, um, zero contracts. And, um, uh, and it's just very, very, very tough to keep them. This is a fact. So I actually spoke to one of our uh, domiciliary care providers in Surrey, down at Red Hill recently. The people who come in and clean their offices get paid more than the carers. You know, this is just no way to treat people who do a very, very difficult job with uh, frail elderly people, often complex mental health. And we've been running down social care or the government has been running down social care for many years now. And that really, if if there was short term attention, I'd direct it more towards social care than healthcare. Healthcare we need to solve in the longer term. Um, But I think there are ways around that, which we might talk about later. 
but social care is very much in deep crisis. I'd say the NHS is only in mild crisis. A crisis nevertheless, and, no, crisis and I think it's worth um, bearing in mind, of course, that you bring um, four decades of experience, leadership in uh, mm -hmm. social care, private acute health. Broadening the context a little bit, uh, the shortages are, are, are global. The World Health Organization issued a report uh, looking at Europe uh, and said it's now time to act, otherwise we're going to face a, a, a tremendous crisis. We're in a, a VUCA environment, uh, which uh, I think that term was first coined nearly 35 years ago. It's quintessentially so now, inflation supply chain recession year long. I want to tackle the question of funding very briefly. Mm -hmm. um, the autumn statement was lauded in some quarters as being more generous than was expected prior to its delivery. It's still significantly less than the 3.7 real terms increase that the NHS are used to and nowhere near the £7 billion funding required for social care. Can you put that into context for us? Because anything we try to do in terms of the pay, the workforce, social care in particular, and NHS, has to be within a funding requirement that can meet its needs. Yeah. I think they, you know, they, there's an infinite amount of money you could spend on health and social care. <clears throat> so there has to be a limit, and we've got to be realistic about that as a, as a country. What I think we have got to do, though, and I think the politicians, again, have an important role in this, we can't keep promising ever better be services, better access, everything's going to get great, you can have choice, you can go, you know... Uh, on the one hand, and then reduce real-term funding uh, in the other. And the epidemiology is getting worse. I mean, we have an aging population. Acuity is higher. Post-COVID, people are iller. Uh, we've had a big spike, which we might come back to, in uh, mental health, particularly children and young pe people's mental health in Surrey. So eating disorders, self-harm, uh, adolescent suicide, all doubled. Rates have doubled in the last two or three years. Um, so we've got, you know, an increase in need at a time when real budgets are being declined. And I think we've got to start being honest with the British population about what they get uh, for their money. I think it's, I understand the politicians and our view that you really want to promise the best service uh, and do it at the lowest cost to taxpayer. But I think we've got to start being a lot more honest with the British people about what we can afford. Well, I think we'll come on to speaking a bit more broadly around those uh, social determinants of health yeah. and social care, which may address it. Looking at the bigger landscape, um, ICSs um, in various forms have been around a long time, in statutory footing, of course, this year. Um, we, we can talk about the NHS, England's operating framework, probably won't have time. But I think it's important to bear in mind that workforce planning, I wanted to touch upon that. The Health and Care Act, as you know, the government defeated any attempt to impose a duty on them to publish independent assessments of health workforce needs. Yeah. There is a workforce strategy that's been promised um, several health secretaries back. Uh, it is due uh, still. Um, I don't want to go into the huge detail, but strategies, it's been banded about as a, a term. You're very familiar with Michael Porter's work. And to paraphrase him, he talks about a unique mix of value, a different way of doing things. What would you like to see, two or three things, it's just high level in a workforce strategy, assuming we get one? Yeah, I think we've got to understand, you know, where the shortages are. And the first thing we need to do is to make sure we're working as efficiently as possible. Maybe we do need more GPs. I'm not sure that we do, frankly. I mean, I think if we had more allied health professionals, and there are some good moves on that in the ARRS uh, initiatives. Um, but I think we too often go to the top of somebody's license. So, you know, it's straight to the GP and then straight to the consultant. Um, you know, we need a much more graduated um, system of healthcare delivery and send people to the most appropriate person. You know, for somebody who's 
got marital problems and debt problems and goes to their GP, you know, to because they've got, uh, you know, associated uh, illnesses. You know, there's a broader range of people who should be dealing with that person, not just the GP. It's beginning to happen, social prescribing, um, but we've got to do a lot more of that. I think until we've really figured out, you know, what what sort of breadth of skill we need in the workforce, and we're making sure that people are doing their real jobs. So if it's a social care problem or a social problem, let's have a social worker doing it rather than uh, the GP. Once we've figured that out, then I think we can say, do we have a shortage of consultants or GPs? But to jump to, we need 5,000 more GPs without, without having done that work, I think is, is premature and potentially very costly and probably won't solve the problem. So it's a question of let's get the data right before we start making decisions. the data right, and I think it is an ICS. Uh, I think the ICS is absolutely the right way to go. We should have done this 70 years ago, at least. So it's not as if this is novel and new. We've been talking about this for a very, very long time. In fact, the Secretary of State for Health in 1961 called for more out-of-hospital care and closer relationships with local authorities. So this isn't a new idea. What we need to do is make sure this works and you know, stop any reorganizations. They're the things that most destroy patient value in our system. Give power and authority and budgets to the ICS as holders to account uh, for delivering better patient uh, and social care outcomes and let us get on with it and don't introduce another reorganization that will kick the table over and start all again, you know, to the detriment of the health of our people. So this is absolutely the right way to go. And once we've got the authority uh, in the ICSs, we need to start taking a lot more of that care out of hospital and doing it in the community, both for acute medicine, so uh, urgent care pathways that don't always end up at A&E, which too often they do, uh, fixed social care, the domiciliary care and care home market, so that we can get people to places of safety out of hospital and keep them there uh, safely. Uh, and all of those have to be done, I think, on an ICS footprint of a million and a half people or so, which is what uh, what we've got in uh, in Surrey, and start taking that cost and harm out of the hospitals because it is not good for somebody to get stuck into a stuck in an acute hospital. And also make sure that uh, there is representation and voice from across the full landscape, uh, local authorities, the voluntary sector. And, and actually, you know, we do it pretty well. I think we've got a very good dialogue going with our local authority. I think we're very lucky in Surrey because we've got a we're coterminous, more or less, with our county council. Uh, and it's a single county council. And, you know, we've got a very good dialogue with them. We, you know, we haven't got any... But uh, Of course, there's arguments about who pays for what. Is it continuing healthcare or is it you know, local authority funded social care, but, you know, we're at the table and we're talking and we are going to crack this. I think we're going to increasingly integrate health and social care, integrating funding workforce and especially management um, and uh, and get this right. So I think we're fortunate in Surrey, but I think in other parts of the country, it's a lot more, no, a lot more difficult. I mean, there's different levels of maturity, as you say. I wanted to, to focus a little bit more detail about what is happening in Surrey and some of the good yep. practices that you're seeing. Um, your United People's strategy is Yep. highlighting the idea of modernising integrated workforce, but also one of the key issues... Done your research well there, so yeah, that's Well, we, we, we try, we try. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's, uh, it, it has a personal resonance to me because I, I, I was at uh, um, law school in, in Guildford and uh-huh. uh, wonderful memories of that place, oh, yeah. um, if, if a little stressful. Yeah. Um, looking at, you, you talked earlier about well-being, um, and that's a huge issue, but I want to tie it to the cost of living challenge, where nearly not far off a a hundred years since the general strike, um, which I know you know that subject very, very well. Uh, We now have strike action upon us. 
uh, within the NHS. Yeah. Uh, we have a cost of living challenge where healthcare workers are required de facto to take real term pay cuts. I want to focus on some of the work that you're doing there to support yeah. um, cost of living and, and financial well-being, because that is a very important component of mental health. Absolutely. Uh, well, we're, we're very active. So we have wellness programs. We have, uh, uh, you know, mental health um, mentors, uh, you know, and, and we advertise that literally weekly uh, because this is a huge problem for people. I mean, cost of living uh, crisis, uh, fuel especially as people um, you know, need to drive, especially somewhere like Surrey, which is a, you know, rural and public transport isn't, isn't great there. I think it's a huge problem. We need to support them uh, a lot. And again, the local authority is doing good stuff. So they've set up, um, centers in libraries, uh, which are warm because heating is, you know, fuel poverty is going to be a very big problem. Uh, so they, they and we are doing as much as we can, but you know, we better be uh, honest again, the next couple of years are going to be extremely tough. Thank you for that. And the sickness rates, you mentioned them earlier, yeah. t- talking about the NHS broadly, and that they've gone up from in 2020 to 4 point, from 4.3% to 5.2%. Yeah. Are you seeing that uh, in terms of the local landscape? And Yeah, so we're up at toward, more towards the 6% figure. Uh, yes, no, it's a very big problem. And, and, you know, as I said at the start, you know, people are very stressed and, um, you know, we need to give them as much support uh, as we can. And uh, we are trying to do that in Surrey. Again, I think it's an easier environment. You know, it's a more affluent area than uh, probably any other part of the UK. So we're a bit fortunate on it. But even so, we have, you know, the not well paid, the cost of living crisis is is hitting everybody. And um, we are doing an awful lot to try to, to look after our, our people. Fantastic. Um, I wanted to talk around um, the loss of workers from the mm-hmm. NHS and social care perhaps is slightly yeah. different because of the funding and the pay rates. We know that uh, supermarkets can pay less, uh, pay more than uh, um, the uh, social care providers. Inclusion and culture. We've had the NHS people plan. Um, your United People strategy talks about a one team approach, yeah. etc. I want to tackle the idea of inclusion. There are, there's been a raft of uh, studies showing that that remains a challenge within the NHS. It is in, people are committed to it. Just how important that is that in terms of retention? Well, it's very important. I mean, firstly, looking at the patient population, you know, it is it's it's rather sobering if you look at spend per capita depending on where you are, the most deprived parts of this country receive lower spend per capita on health and social care than uh, the richest parts. Uh, because the, uh, you know, the, the richer parts of the country know their rights and uh, they know how to work the system and access um, public services, whereas poor people don't have that voice. Uh, and we've really got to turn that around because it is a high cost. Although it's lower cost in the short term, of course, these people deteriorate uh, and uh, towards the end of their lives are very expensive. But not just for that. We need to give people proper quality of life, and we still have very serious inequalities uh, in our population. In terms of the workforce, one part of the United strategy, as you say, is to look across health and social care, but even more broadly uh, than that, uh, to include the providers. As you know, the Domcare and care home providers are um, almost exclusively private sector, and they've not really been at the table they employ nearly a million and a half people. Um, mm. So, you know, it's it's quite neglectful of us not to have them, you know, on the inside talking about how to solve these problems. Uh, again, we've been fortunate in Surrey that there's a single person, Bex Pritchard, who represents all the Dom Care and Care Home providers in the region and is at the table. So she is in our integrated care partnership uh, board. 
Um, we believe there is a much stronger role for carers and they need to be supported much more families. Uh, so we have uh, a woman called Sue Tresman who represents uh, the carers. <clears throat> and again, she's right at the center of our decision making. Because unless we broaden this out, you know, from a professional medical or social care workforce to include the care home providers and dom care providers and more broadly to support families, uh, to support their, uh, their relatives, um, then we're never going to crack this, uh, this problem. I mean, you know, one of the history, one of the historical facets of the health service is that we have over-professionalized and over-medicalized service. Obviously, if you need a liver transplant or you need, you know, you need, uh, uh, you know, your hip replacing, you know, you need a specialist. <laughs> but I think we need to get many more people involved in the provision of, of care and, um, and spiritual support from families, communities, and so on. And that's another part of what the ICS is, is, uh, the ICS is, is going to do. And again, I think we're working well on it in Surrey. So a lot of this is, you know, from the Michael Marmot uh, work in 2010, getting way ahead of this so that we're stopping people deteriorate in the first place, focusing on inequalities because those are the people who deteriorate poorly with poor diets, poor lifestyle, stress. Um, if you're on the, uh, uh, on the living wage, you know, we need to look at employment, education, housing is a big part of this problem. We've had a number of initiatives in Surrey um, to get ahead of the curve, get people into secure housing and safely into housing. And there is real data that that stops them ending up at accident emergency and being admitted to hospital and getting stuck in hospital. Um, so this is the right way to go with the integrated care systems. Uh, but we do need the time and support uh, of the government and our communities to make them work. You touched upon an interesting point there about over-medicalising, over-professionalising. Yeah. Um, and we're now seeing an acceptance that, that there's a variegated approach mm -hmm. uh, to entry. Um, New Cross Healthcare's uh, mission is to be a learning partner for life and offer free training for people who want to enter this uh, profession. Can you sort of elaborate further on the roles that you're seeing emerging? Because it's now not simply the clinicians that perhaps that uh, an older generation would be used to. There is now a multifaceted approach to people and yep. the roles that they can do in multidisciplinary teams as well. Absolutely. You know, we've, uh, and, and let's take the example of mental health. I mean, it can take <clears throat> for attention deficit syndrome or autism, it can be a four-year waiting list. I mean, just imagine that for a child who's, who's potentially suicidal, waiting four years to see a consultant. I think we can do a lot more earlier on with people who aren't, you know, fully qualified clinical psychologists or psychiatrists uh, who, who know the basics of, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy, which we know does work for that cohort uh, of people. And, uh, you know, and get, get people who aren't, as I say, haven't done the whatever it takes for a psychiatrist, eight, eight years for a psychiatrist or six years for a clinical psychologist, but that we're offering support earlier because it will stop um, those uh, children, in this case, uh, deteriorating. But I think we need to get even further ahead of that. And I think this is a government and local authority priori priority. You know, we over-categorize illness. We, we tell people they have attention deficit syndrome or autism. My niece is a headmistress in East London, and she says she'd never actually seen somebody who really does have attention deficit <laughs> syndrome. There are many other factors, family and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but we jump too quickly to a diagnosis and then too quickly to a medicalized pathway. And often that medicalized pathway isn't there because there's a waiting list of four years. I think we need to get way ahead of this. I think the government's got to do an awful lot more, especially with this recent case of Molly 
to teach children resilience in school, how to have a resilient life, how not to be, you know, overwhelmed by peer pressure and, and body image, teach people the dangers of social media. I think we, you know, we, we frankly pussyfoot around uh, these tech companies because they lobby hard uh, and they are damaging our children and putting them at risk. And I think we've got to get way ahead of that in the schools and reduce the uh, the number of people who are presenting and then being categorized and over-medicalized um, with uh, diagnoses. Uh, I mean, that's a big uh, a big agenda there, a wide agenda. J- just to go back slightly, because I think one of the uh, initiatives I was interested in seeing in your United, Pe- United People strategy was uh, the Health and Social Care Academy. That's been something that you're yep. committed to. And that draws on all the popula- wider population, including social care as well as the, the health Absolutely. Side. And if you talk to social uh, social care workers who are on, you know, 12, 13, 14 pounds an hour, and ask them what would you know what would what what would prevent them leaving, because frankly, as you say, they can go to Tesco's, they can they can become a cleaner in their own office and get paid more money, uh, which is of course a nonsense. Yeah, another one pound or two pound an hour would allow the dom care provider, domiciliary care providers to to do holiday pay, to do pensions, to do proper contracts. Um, but often those people don't talk just about the money what they want is a is for instance a career progression that they start as a as a as a care worker but they have the opportunity to become a uh, to become a nurse or a paramedic you know they want a, a career path and we don't offer that currently and that is part of our united people strategy is to start offering that sort of uh, that sort of opportunity you know they want the opportunity to to do a year or so working in a hospital to see what that's like um, before they go back into uh, domiciliary care or care homes. So if we get that integrated workforce, I think we will solve some of the problems. I mean, the money is important, especially in the cost of living crisis that we've talked about. Uh, but there's many more things we can do to secure people. I mean, these people want to do the job. I went out with one of our social care workers in Red Hill a couple of months ago, and and um, she'd said, well, you know, I didn't have a full-time contract with the <clears throat> dom care provider. I need that security, so I got a job in a pub. And so I said, well, why are you here? She said, because I love doing this. <laughs> she spends in her spare time. She comes and does uh, this job because she loves caring for people. You know, we, we just can't underestimate the quality of the people there and how we just need to treat them better because this is a tough, tough job. No, oh, absolutely. One final question, if I may. We, we began with a bit of history. If I may, I'll end with one. Uh, Disraeli wrote his novel, Sybil, uh, The Two Nations, almost 200 years ago, yeah. bemoaning the, the chasm in experience uh, across this country. All the stats are now showing uh, the life, healthy life expectancy gap, 19 years from the most affluent to the least yeah. affluent nations, uh, parts of the uh, country. And then if we look at uh, the onset of multiple conditions 10 or 15 years earlier if we start putting variables of ethnicity and social deprivation yeah. we we haven't progressed a huge amount it seems and you've touched upon some of the t- social determinants and ICSs are under an obligation for population health and inequalities leveling up and this type of thing is an important lever in all of this yeah I think, as I said earlier I think the Michael Marmot work in 2010 was a breakthrough uh, I mean you've quoted the the difference in life expectancy, he used the tube journey. Um, this is, we are failing a large part of our population. And as I also said at the start, they don't have voice. So they actually get less NHS spend in the crucial parts of their lives when they're active uh, adults. And it's it's something we've got to do, not just for equality, but also for the quality of life of those 
uh, of those people at the end of the day for cost. Because as I say, once those people deteriorate badly and do end up in the acute uh, sector, then it's uh, extremely expensive. So I think from every point of view, you know, from equality, from morality, uh, and also from economics, we've really got to change the way that we operate this country. And it's it's amongst the worst in Europe. And it's no wonder that we have some of the worst inequalities in Europe. And we also have some of the worst health outcomes in Europe. And those two are related. And the very final point, um, we've also got to make sure that the leadership um, in all the organizations reflects uh, the demography of the populations that we serve. Yep. There's been great progress made, uh, yep. undoubtedly, a long way to go. Um, leadership is a very important topic, I know, to you. Are, are you seeing um, great strides in that regard in terms of not just the training of leaders, but in terms of drawing leaders off from a, a disparate population yes. base? Yes, no, we, we, we clearly need more diversity and higher representation. It's it's something all of us can you know have an obligation to uh, to do. As I say, those the ethnicity and inequality tend again to be correlated, and so we're not going to solve that voice that I talked about unless you know there are more leaders from our ethnic uh, communities. Apart from the disgrace of racism, which we should combat, you know, as something in its own right. But there, as I say, there are good economic and health uh, reasons for us to do it as well. Thank you very much. I think there's a lot uh, for all policymakers and pundits to think about. Sure. Uh, as ever, Ian Smith, thank you very much for thank your time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want more information about how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahail Mirza. Thank you very much and goodbye.